Well, uh, we are kicking off our third episode in season three, three of three. This season, Kali, this is the Origins Podcast. I am Ron Green, a.k.a. Lucian Nather. And this is... I am Carl here in Belgrade, Maine, a.k.a. Glue Scabby, ready to talk a little bit about uh, playing. It's a good thing as big people and specifically uh, how to uh, make some toys from trash. In the regenerative and holistic closing loops lifestyle, we are interested in anytime we can make educational enrichment out of closing the loop, meaning taking a waste stream and diverting it back into the system uh, somehow. And when I'd say when we really investigated this heavily, when um, you know we got so much from Studio One in Costa Rica for one thing and finding repurpose repurposable reusable upcyclable materials is really difficult in costa rica because the culture at least a decade ago uh, i have no idea what it looks like now but a decade ago there were so many people that would come and take anything that you were throwing away that that could be repurposed that was looked valuable in some way they made use of it so that that was an interesting problem to have where um even things like plastic bottles were hard to come Ooh, by impossible yeah right right i mean it, it's really hard to to highlight enough the societal contrast um, as we're as we're approaching this topic of toys from trash, you know, now being stateside about two years, um, eh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I went to uh, what the the last I, I would say the most recent experience of toys from trash was this past Christmas. Uh, one of the boys' uh, gift we did a shared gifts which is a big no-no in a lot of places, but we decided the boys are going to have it. Last year they had, had gotten their own uh, video game thing. And uh, man, that worked out for reasons, but this year it's been a lot of shared things. Um, and one of them was a snowboard. Now this snowboard was the first gift for the season that I had come across for the boys, but uh, it was not purchased. It uh, came from the transfer station. <laughs> you know, last <laughs> Last at the end of last winter, it must have been because I had it forever. My my dad was around. And he saw me put that in storage over there uh, at his place. And anyway, so you know, it's it, my point in all of this is that you know, like you're talking about not being able to find even a bottle to make like you know xylophones right out with the food that you fill up with water and make little you know, percussive instruments. Like it was so hard to find anything. And here I feel like there's a lot of really, really nice waste with which to play. Yeah. If we're, if we're doing a straight up comparison, there, there is no comparison. I remember coming, you know, when we moved originative operations or when we initiated originative operations in Denver, having moved back in 2014, I remember taking my parents' truck around on large pickup trash day in Denver. (laughs) And that was like the time when people would like, if they had any large item, they could just take it out to their curb. 
And so people were throwing away TVs, all sorts of furniture that wasn't really bad. (laughs) You know, some of it was was, was older. And then those become really great project furniture, right? Because you're like, okay, I won't feel bad if I destroy this piece of furniture on this project, but I can practice on it. And if we come up with a cool creative project to repurpose it, then great. If not, no big deal. But I was just amazed. I was like, man, the things that are, that count as trash here, and I'm not talking about in like affluent parts of the city. I'm talking about mm-hmm. everywhere. The mm-hmm. things that people throw away, even in heavily stressed socioeconomic areas, are it, it's incredible. It's a demonstration that poverty here is not poverty in other places. Mm-hmm. It, it also is really indicative of. I mean, the topic at hand today is, you know, a repurposing of waste um, and, and within the realm of play, right? So so taking some trash, turning it into a toy. It, and what we're getting at is like a way of thinking, right? Not being cheap and chintzy about it, but repurposing, not being, avoiding con- the, the, the consuming inclination that we're inclined towards. You know, one that really comes to mind from the early days in Costa Rica uh, was that table. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that was a great one. Where, where did that table come from? Somehow we came across a table. It had four legs and what was left of... <laughs> <clears throat> thank, thank you. Thank you. Four-leg table. It was four legs and what was left of a Formica top. It, I mean, if you, you could have easily, one person could have bet the whole thing in half. I mean, it was just like, right. to say that it's on its, it was on its last leg. <laughs> <laughs> There's a pun there somewhere. It, it was like, okay, what can we do with this? And, and, uh, table. Where did that, where did that come from? Like, because even though what you're describing sounds precarious, it's hard to come across something like that. Where did that table come from? It came from somewhere near Calle Tres. I don't recall. Exactly. I just remember, I remember some part of the story being like, the people are like, really? You, you like, they felt so bad. They, <laughs> they must have thought like, you must really be in need, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Table. And, and anyone who saw that when it first came in, I mean, I was, you know, again, like, very new to a lot of the regenerative concepts that we talk about, you know, uh, through each one of these episodes were, were things that kind of emerged as necessary ways of thinking in order to become more regenerative. But but also just in basic carpentry, I, I would never have imagined what could be possible um, with something so not appealing. But you somehow came back with it. And, and what took place? Yeah, we came back with it. And then we went to the lumber store and we bought a piece of, it's like three eighths inch plywood uh-huh. with like a veneer on top that you could stain. And we brought that back and we applied that to the top. And so we strengthened the whole table by adding that other piece of plywood to the top. And then we had a nice surface on the top. And a lot of people might leave it at that, but that is not where we left it. Um, it became a studio project, right? 
And so it was a, it was probably like a, what, a six person table. You could put four four people on in the middle and two on each side. Yeah. What we did is we put two chess boards on the middle and we painted those. And so the, we, the only thing that we painted with, was like a black paint uh, type of um, work. And we left the white squares as just the natural color of the mm-hmm. wood. Right. And um, found out later from your wife, who was a chess master, that we uh, that we oriented the chess boards in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we didn't like, know what the fuck we were doing. Right. You'd yeah. never you'd never think of it, right? If you know, like that that somehow like the the bottom left corner has to be start with white or something right. everybody knows where the queen goes queen black queen goes on black you know but right. you never think about what should the left bottom corner be black or white <laughs> exactly yeah and so they were all uh basically 90 degrees off so um, but you never you never forget that and and that's that's such the beauty of yep. of, of like the whole experience it's not just taking an abandoned thing, flipping it around, selling it. Because if that happens, you tend to forget. Right. And, 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 and there's, because there's no story and the layers upon the experiences and the people that are around tables, especially such a special one as the one you're talking about. Right. That in itself is part of the learning process. Then we proceeded to decorate the edge of the table. We started with the corners first. And we started painting basically small illustrations of the stories and the sequences of events that were happening at the studio. So we had, I don't know, illustrations of birds that we would see around the studio. Right, right. uh, Like in a mosaic type thing. And I remember it also being really a joint project in that Jill was kind of like working from one side and you were working from the other side and, and you could see depictions of each of you and all of those things became just great conversations when, you know, you're gathered around with a bunch of teenagers and they're sitting at a table that is not just a tape. Yeah. It becomes a functional piece of art. Right. And this became, I would say a part of the way that we looked at activities in general at the studios is how do you layer learning on top of multiple activities and also to change the focus of whatever the product is. When you spend so much time on something, you want that to be a living piece of what the studio is. So it's not just a piece of art, but it also has a purpose. And so it's, it's, it is a table. But it's a conversational piece. It's a way to keep English going because we we were selling our gringo, you know, accents uh, in English as uh, as a way as a reason for people to send their kids to the studio. And when people come in, and you want there to be authentic conversation happening, you need things to talk about, right? And, right. and especially concrete things. So the entire studio evolved like that, where we had the map room, where one whole wall was a map of the world. And we had discussions about how we might categorize regions, but not from a nationality perspective, but from a linguistic perspective. There was a few things that were appealing about this. It was massive. 
usually people are like, let's study the world. And then you're like looking for Costa Rica. I think this is the first time people could actually say Costa Rica. The other thing was that um, some of the language on the map was English. May not be as impressive mentioning it here on the podcast, but again, everything that we talk about from Studio One and the amount of learning that would take place was always in an L2, language two sort of setting. And so just being able to go in and look at the spelling of something such as Europe created possibilities. Um, the other thing that was fascinating about the map was, like Ron was saying, it wasn't a map of the of the countries in, in, of the world. It had the the bodies of land and the bodies of water and and like ron was saying it created the possibility for divvying it up in different kind of ways and um that imaginatory nature of geography the the discoverers had a chance to play with but right now we're just left to kind of memorize and it kind of steals the fun out of the whole endeavor and because we were working on the project, on, on all of these projects, we, we did it at the studio in real time with students. The map, for example, was a mathematical endeavor and a geography lesson and a art lesson for all of the kids. They had to measure the distances between longitudinal lines, latitudinal lines, and they had to, and then they had to use that, that grid with which to connect all of the shorelines of the continents. Right. What we noticed was that when people spend that much time in that project, the repetition of language that you're using is authentic and meaningful, and it sinks in. Rather than opening up a book to course one, lesson one, all right, here are items that you might find in a kitchen. Let's memorize them. Yeah, yeah. I remember moments of, you know, identifying why, why we speak Spanish in Costa Rica and where, why English is spoken up north and, you know, and just like being able to move your hand across this map following some voyage from Spain down into the Spanish lands, um, you know, and, 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 I, and oftentimes the students, they would, they would talk different kind of stories. They would tell different kind of stories of how much this time in the studio where they didn't speak a word of English and we were having these geography classes had influenced <laughs> and helped their progress through their language one curriculum in their regular high schools. I mean, that was just fascinating. Yeah, it was awesome um, because they were still learning. You know, a lot of, a lot of kids, you could use the map uh, as, as a real-time litmus test and, and say, okay, because it wasn't divided up into nations, it was a more authentic question of, okay, what is this part of the world? Look at the shape of the part of the, of this part of the world. Right. What, where, where are you? What, like, what is that? And a lot yeah. of kids, even if it would have been divided up into countries, you know, a lot right. of them couldn't identify Europe, where Europe was. They knew 
maybe the shape of their local geography a little bit. But when it came to world geography, it was like, forget it. The other thing worth kind of just reminding is, was our mixed age approach. And so you would have all of these bizarre scenarios all the time where maybe like a kid in middle school was helping some of the high schoolers. And it was never in this right. sense of, of like, oh, my gosh, you don't know it. Like the, the environment was just so welcoming to who knew because nobody was being tested. So there's all these connectors that made things possible. Exactly. Um, and if you don't mention them, then it seems like you know some idyllic situation. And it really was. And education can be, but you really have to make sure that you're pulling out all of the things that are in the way. Being able to be an enriched environment that is welcoming to all ages at the same time in a language too, necessarily the content cannot come from a textbook. And, and, and textbooks have this ease of learning taking place, but it's just because the controls have all been accounted for. And so you have this, like, how, how, how would I say that? Um, uniform, you would have a very uniform uh, population <laughs> and moment in time in which very few things were really being addressed at all. And what we were doing was not only addressing language learning, but also the artistic spatial intelligences um, by the canvas, the larger than life canvas in which this was being addressed. But then also, like Ron was saying, the mathematical components and the history of the geography of all of these places and just messing with it all. You know, and it wasn't until years later that, um, you know, I think like, I, I forget where it was, but you know, somebody was talking about, about transversal uh, curriculum components. And I was like, well, what is that? And it's like, that's what we used to do in Studio One. It's right. like where the math teacher is inserting, you know, the geography courses. But all of those great ideas become really difficult in environments that are compartmentalized. So you, you bring in like band-aid efforts into what really just needs to be kind of demolished and given some space within which a school ethos of its own can take place. Nothing that we did in Studio One was ever meant to be reproduced in its same way. Right. It was a laboratory to study the possibilities of education outside of education as we knew it. The successes of it have only served to move further into true education, in, but in, in very unique ways in all of the new um, environments in which we've brought out those ideas and try to put them into play. One of the great learning aspects that came out of that, as we abandoned any sort of notion of um, using 
prepackaged curriculum textbooks uh, as the form and the direction that, that we were supposed to, to go. That followed us into our own language one educational endeavors where, where we look at, you know, the science class in high school that we teach here in Denver, where it's just like, no, we're not going to use a book because that doesn't make any sense. That's like you said before, prepackaged curriculum makes the institution and the teacher feel like learning is going to take place. But it is not a guarantee that learning is taking place. And, and the learning that is taking place from a book is almost always shortchanging all of the real experiences that you could have been having or the real cross-connected, cross-curricular information that should be included and it makes sense to include at the same time. When we build an oven out of the clay from the back, uh, from the back of Studio One, um, mm. and then we, and then once once we are, we're done washing our hands and we fire it up, and we start cooking. Cooking is chemistry as much as it's history, as much as it's cultural, as much as it's uh, agricultural. It's all of those yeah. things, and so <clears throat> socio emotional. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so when we're when we're making empanadas de piña and co- cooking them in the clay oven, it's like some kids are like, "Oh wow!" Like, like they have it, this this emotional connection to that from their family making them at home, yeah. and then yeah. it's and then they're making it there, and so it, it's it it breathes such a completely different life into a learning space. And that's why we call Studio One and we attempt to replicate this idea of a living classroom everywhere we go. The classroom itself should be alive. If the furniture of your classroom is built, designed, and an art project and a, and a cultural project and a mathematical project of the students themselves, when that furniture is just a live, it, it, that furniture never ceases to be a living piece of the of the functional uh, <clears throat> educational of all of the students that ever walk through the door. Anybody who has experienced making their own first home away from mom and dad's and nests know how rewarding it can be, and that sense of identity and that sense of belonging in your own home. Students, children deserve that as well. And we leave so few spaces for them to, you know, make their world, make their rooms, make their playgrounds. I'd like you to share a little bit about you know, since we've talked a little bit in the beginning of the program of some things that took place early on when we were coming to all of this and concepts that, you know, emerged and we were able to articulate a little bit better through the Studio One experience. Certainly, um, they came into play in Denver as you, you know, continued a different chapter there. Uh, specifically, you know, in early childhood education, you have a really cool project that we've spoken on other at other podcasts. Tell us a little bit about that, because I'll frame it like this. We're talking about environments, and you've never <laughs> instructed a class, as far as I know, inside this kindergarten. 
year round, sun, rain, snow, kids are outside in an environment that was abandoned when you first got there. And now is just something that makes you wish that you were a child again and could just stay there and play all day. What Carl is talking about is originatives living classrooms that we design and help build and deploy uh, instruction in. And these have happened at a few different locations uh, in Denver. All of them have their seeds and roots in Studio One in Costa Rica. Starting with a tire that we pulled out of the river down uh, down in Costa Rica, and we hung it in a saba tree and uh, bought some rope and hung it from the tree. And so our our playground in, in Costa Rica was a walk down to the river. There was you know this unbuildable area because of the flooding that would occur. But there was this massive, I mean, that tree had to be five, six, seven hundred years old. It, it, it was so big. And I remember it was a challenge to even get the, the rope up into the tree because the limb that we had it on, it was so big. And yeah. originally, originally, we were going to hang this thing from a guanacaste tree. As we're throwing the rope up into the tree, the neighbor down below, he sees what's going on. He's just like, look, guys, you don't want to swing on the branches of a guanacaste tree because they're so brittle that they'll snap if you put too much weight on them. We had to go look for a tree that was, uh, that was a, a, a real girthy hardwood tree. And back down to the area where we used to play stickball and... <laughs> yeah, the, the old quarry where, yeah. where the sidewalks of Esparza were made from, right? Yeah. Yeah, down where, where we where we taught all the kids how to play baseball. And all <laughs> yeah. and all the kids, all the, the Nicaraguan kids from the Precario would come and play. And they were awesome right. because they were all from Nicaragua and they knew they knew what baseball was. Right. <laughs> I mean touching on our our ex, uh, our inclusivity, right? big word nowadays um you know when you when you take your school and you're paying customers down to an old quarry and the neighborhood kids show up and it's it there's there's no there's no differentiation we're all gonna just play that adds a whole other layer of deep learning that is also taking place in all the wrong ways when that inclusivity doesn't take place and, and kids, they don't say anything, but they realize uh, they're not us. Right. That entire area was a resource for what people did consider trash and, and what, you know, in, in Costa Rica, what the primary source of trash that, uh, that we started repurposing was natural materials is leaves Hmm. things that that you know pe- people were very manicure they they would manicure their yards and so um you could walk down the street and pick up 10 baskets full of star fruit from the tree that was just always overflowing with with fruit and the hikaras uh is another thing that that, that we would use because people don't use hikaras anymore they have these hikara trees but they're they they will gladly 
thank you for taking all the hikaras off their property because these things just rot on the tree and then they fall down and they got these hikaras in their yard. And, and so those are the aspects that we're like, okay, well, we can take this, this gourd that grows on a tree. And then when we discover the cultural aspects of what, uh, what the, the indigenous culture used to do with the gourds, it's like, whoa, not only do we, um, get to, uh, have this project where we create lanterns, faroles for the, the parade in September every year, but, we also carve into them and cut and different designs and kids, kids can make whatever kind of design that they want out of them. They're designed to be, it's kind of like a jack-o'-lantern, but it's far more permanent. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's kind of, kind of like that. Yeah. Um, because the, the, the Hikara gourd that Ron's talking about, not necessarily edible, but the seeds inside can be used uh, for a drink called or, or chata. But for the most part, um, you know, what, what it's all kind of emptied out. Like you would take out the seeds of a pumpkin uh, for pumpkin carving, but the exterior layer is kind of like a hard nut sort of thing like a walnut would have much smoother and it, and then it has like a little film kind of pearish layer of skin that can be scraped and etched at and then your carvings really remain permanent i mean we had we had these year after year after year um and so these gourds were also used as well, what would you call it like farol how would you say ferals lantern lanterns right so so you would have candles inside it and you could have different holes for them Um, and these were really used as lanterns back in the day you know because they protected from the wind but allowed the flame to burn and not your hand and just a fantastic central american rendition of the northern story of Jack, Stingy Jack, right? With the embers <laughs> of hell inside right. the Calabash gourd. You know, when we go that far back in our stories and in our play, it's not that much. It's not that different. In fact, by, by utilizing nature as a waste stream and the, and the decay of nature, we are almost always able to find aspects of local ecology within ancient mythology uh, from that area. So mm. it's a way to connect the stories of the land that evolved from the land, from the indigenous cultures, and to tie modern humans back into that. When we move forward and, and say, okay, well, how do we recreate that type of learning environment, but within the context of uh, the United States? Where we started to gain a foothold is in preschools and after-school care centers. Uh, So children basically three through 12. And if it's a private facility, they may have some space that's unutilized. Uh, Hold on. Before you go into the space that's utilized, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned that we started to, you know, focus one of the transitions from the work in Costa Rica, which was successful because we spoke the gringo accent and could therefore get a foot in the door to then, you know, really teach the youth of Esparza what we thought they needed, which is, yes, you need English, 
right? But you also need right. a lot of other stuff. And and but the but but the customer, the parents of these kids were only interested in one, which was the English. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, they would entertain some of the other stuff, but they always really would just check in how much English is he learning. I mentioned that because the shift that was in the States. Um, oh, but the other important point is that we had chosen a a market in which within the world of second language, there's some structure, but there's quite a bit of flexibility. And so we could play and interact within that, which would not have been the case, say, if we were had decided we're going to be English teachers at a high school. Same age kids, but within a high school system, high school English class. We wouldn't be able to do that. But as an after-school type ESL program, there was a lot of flexibility. And I say all that because that was the reason or one of the reasons that we gravitated towards being able to work with early childhood education because everything else is just too governed, too established. And so what we we began to identify was the flexibility and the same possibilities that we had seen in Costa Rica with, you know, the, the, the youth through ESL was possible stateside in early childhood education. Yeah. Yeah. These centers were really inviting because uh, everything that we did was hands-on and the director's uh, local directors, I think, are are perennially challenged by uh, staff that thinks of a preschool as being a place where some adults give snacks to kids, have right. a circle time, and talk about a calendar, and then you know work on letters and numbers and go through ream after ream after ream of paper uh, because that, <laughs> and and then maybe put a put a bean in a in a cup and put it in the windowsill and cotton cotton all around it all the stuff that you know everyone has seen over and over again but it's not it's not play-based right we are talking about toys from trash and what we're really trying to emphasize is that your learning environment should be basically a big playground and it should be run like a playground where kids can go anywhere they want and the adults are not there to be hall monitors or, you know, supervisors, but the adults are there as play partners. Uh, That's a very different philosophy than what is happening at most early childhood centers uh, in in the States. And, And we actually designed our program as sort of a training program. Like what we wanted was for centers to kind of take this approach, learn from us, and then be like, okay, well, we get it. And now we don't need you anymore. Uh, because we all know what's going on. We, we, we get this and uh, you guys go out and find someone else to to talk to. And, and what we have found is that before that training can actually take root, the staff turnover in institutions is uh, much faster than the training time necessary to move people into this type of education. And so oh, we end up right. being the most perennial uh, so at one particular preschool that we're, that we're working at, um, that I shared some pictures with, uh, last week of the tree house and the cottage that we've built out of pallets. Uh, it's a two, it's, it's a two story tree house or a two story cottage. 
Um, and we're working little by little. It's all done with recycled materials. Well, when did the Project Fairy Garden start at this center? We started the Fairy Garden projects as a way to, um, we were asked by, by one particular preschool to design a science curriculum program. And what happened was I kept seeing, you know, I kept driving, I, we were delivering music and storytelling and stuff like that at the, at the school at the time. And they, and we had done some summer programs where we did process theater where kids had to build their own set. And every day that they showed up, they had to switch roles and they all had to exchange roles. And so every child had to be every part in the play. And then we finally did a performance and, and did and pulled roles out of a hat. Right. So, so no one knew what role they were going to have. Yeah. And so, and, and everyone knew what to do because they had our, everyone had been all of those different parts. And so when, when you take a story like 40, like the 40 thieves, uh, Alibaba and the 40 thieves, um, you have plenty enough parts for all of the students and you just, you just change out those roles so that no one is left out. Everyone learns the story far more at, at, at a much greater depth because they have viscerally been every character in that story. And so anyway, that, that triggered the request for us to bring a science curriculum. Before you go there, let, let's just be sure to do a podcast just on process theater. Yeah. I think that yeah, process, where, where you were awesome. going there, like there's just so many possibilities, like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about somebody that's just like, guys, I've been listening to your podcast for like all these weeks. Can you just throw a dog a bone and just, just give me this one thing that I could go out and kind of just like do, I would say it's like, like, you know, not dismissing creation of a beautiful fairy garden and we can get into that, but, but, but it can be overwhelming for some process theater when we get to that podcast uh it is just something is like you you can't lose (laughs) you just play you just play anyway so i want to make sure that we do that there's a lot to talk about there yeah 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 so anyway this preschool that we're working at was uh housed in a church and the church had uh part of their property was had a a drainage running through it. And so they couldn't build on this property. It was just open raw land. And it was a real problem for the church because they had to pay to maintain it, but it wasn't, it was completely unutilized by, by everyone else. Um, So I have, I have a good friend. uh, We have a good friend, Steve Eggleston, a magnificent human being. And I grew up with Steve. His family had a property in South park, uh, Colorado. And so Steve had had this tradition, which I thought was brilliant, and it finally clicked. See, every year, Steve has a set of maybe 30 or 40 different gnome and fairy sculptures. Every spring, he takes these sculptures out. Uh, he goes up alone, and he goes around his family's cabin, and he hides all of the, the statues in different little places and, and, it, and it changes every year. Right. And then when all the nieces and nephews come up, they have a project. And so they have to go out and, uh, and try to find all of the statues. 
right? And so they're out for hours and hours and hours <laughs> looking and playing in the woods, just like an Easter egg hunt. But this is a perennial thing that goes on and they don't always find, in fact, they rarely find all of the statues. Mm. And he has little prizes for the, for them if they, if they get it. But I'm just like, what if you did, you know, what happens when, when kids are out in nature like that in doing investigatory work, but they have a purpose. It's kind of like a self-guided scavenger hunt in some ways. And when, and he can choose to give clues that landmark clues, he can say, you know, it's by the ponderosa pine that has the big owl nest in it. <laughs> and all the kids know where the ponderosa pine with a big owl's wow. nest in it. So you're teaching ecology through play, yeah. right? You're teaching about the environment through play. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's what we need to do. We need to have an area. Maybe we can use this area. It just clicked as I was driving past. I'm just like, we should just do what Steve does there and get kids to go play on in this open area. Then we'll hide different things around different statues and, and we'll make the statues out of found, you know, nature objects so that if no one ever finds right. them, they just are eaten by nature. They just go back to it. Mm-hmm. And if they do find it, then, then it's like, great, then we can hide it th- again for the next week. And so they have this thing that's going on that just took off uh, like, like crazy. And it's just, I remember and, those. I remember, uh, I don't know where, what year would that have been? We started that project in 2016, fall of 2016. Yeah, so so I would have been in in China as I get these pictures or videos of these. I remember that one with the bow and arrow. Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know what, what's really important in all of this? It's inferred, but worth mentioning is that learning can only be fun for the kids if, as a mentor, you're having a great time too. Yeah. And I thought about mentioning this uh, when you were talking about the map and the different things going on at Studio One, but you're, you're talking about the same thing here. What was fascinating was this challenge of taking an abandoned space outside, right next door to a preschool that had spent thousands of dollars creating a playground and with nothing offering the kids something that had no comparison and just wondering what the adult population is thinking by abandoned lot. Right. That, that was amazing because we, at the same time, the preschool was updating their playground. So we knew what the costs of the conventional playground were. As you were um, picking up pieces of wood to kind of make your next part of you know, the ever-growing fairy garden. Right. Thousands of dollars are dumped into the design of something that, you know, has the look that we know playgrounds have, but not the story, not the experiential learning that was taking place. Right. So what happens from that is that it evolves into, oh, well, let's build a little bridge over it. We'll take some old pallets and we'll build a bridge over the drainage, over the river. Mm-hmm. And oh, let's get another. Let's get a tire and put a tire swing on because we did that in Costa Rica, and kids will play for hours <laughs> and hours and hours on a tire swing. But like, that's a waste of time, <laughs> right? Play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, you know, I I want you to highlight this aspect of because there's stupid repetition, 
And then there's meaningful repetition. Right. And when a kid is playing on their, like they have all the freedom in the world to do anything. See, this is, this is how you distinguish. If you want to know how to distinguish stupid repetition versus meaningful repetition, ask yourself, is the student choosing to do it? Or is the student obliged to do it? If the student is obliged to do it, then it's stupid repetition and you should stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen to this. If the student is thrilled and is engaged in that repetition, do everything you can to make sure that that student stops of his own accord eventually. Right. Because like there's, you know, I never forget... And I think I talk about this enough, um, but, you know, I, was, I, I had a student in, in China at one point that was just kind of annoying, just, oh my gosh. And, and you were like, let him flush out that terrible sense of humor and he'll reach higher levels of humor. But that's where his humor's at, you know, and, and kids they're they're demonstrating that they have a need for endless swing time let them be and i'm highlighting this because i remember as an instructor oftentimes talking with you like but dude all they're doing is swinging you know (laughs) and it felt so good to you know be able to have somebody to talk to that could explain why quote unquote just swinging was just fine yeah. Well, let's unpack it a little bit. So, uh, take a tire swing, um, a tire swing on a tree. It's never going to be the same tire swing on the same tree. And so the limb that it's hanging on is going to be at a different height than say the next tree that has a rope, depending on what that is, <clears throat> will, and, and how lofty the, the swing is, will determine how much momentum kids can get on it. If you allow kids to swing, you will undoubtedly see kids that are interested in swinging, not interested in swinging, interested in swinging, but apprehensive. Kids that are that are comfortable with putting their body through the hole of the tire, but they will not climb the tire to sit on top of the tire. You actually watch a progression of risk-taking and the kids that are greater risk takers in that very gross motor um, development stage, they're modeling what's possible for the kids that are more apprehensive. Right, and, right. and this is what we, what we really tell <clears throat> teachers is don't ever help a child, you know, get into a position that they can't get into on their own because mm-hmm. that's, where, that's where you create danger, right? That's where you create the possibility for an accident because... If the child has to negotiate all of that on their own, they're building not only the strength and, you know, the physics within their body, the proprioception that they need to understand what's happening and and why it's happening. And they've, and the work that they've gone through to get there has also given them skills on how to get out of a situation if they feel uncomfortable. Wow. Right. So a tire swing in itself is an amazing learning apparatus what happens if you don't allow students to have these experiences when you don't allow kids to play that need and that drive doesn't go away. It turns into other behaviors that become problematic later on. Mm -hmm. 
I, I'm dealing w- with a, a lot of high school students right now that weren't allowed to play. And so yeah, clearly, clearly that or you know, never yeah. encouraged, never had the right in space. Um, and you move the spotlight away from that to the world of children, not swinging. Right. And, and, and then you move the spotlight, you know, down this, <laughs> I'm thinking of those RSA drawings, you know, where like they're, they're doing the doodling and they move to the next section and you oh, see right. what happens to those children, you know, 10 years down the line, it's really easy to bargain with, let the kids just swing they are doing exactly what they need to be doing. Absolutely. And I loved everything. I love the breakdown that you were doing. One of the things that I thought about the breakdown of what's happening in the moment of a swing is also that as instructors, we are being asked to critically think and get to know each of our students for the individuals that they are within this collective experience. Absolutely. And you're just throwing off the cuff, like all of these memories of the student that could go through the hole, the student that was willing to climb, that modeled to the other one that was holding its two hands, you know, off to the side, kind of wondering, should I try it? Well, what if I try it? You know, and then the other one was looking in the same way, same position, but their thoughts were, what will others think, you know? Right. And, and then the other one is like, mom's always saying no, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, what, what you were really displaying to me and that was the quality of observation required for mentorship with children. You need to know all of the possibilities that is taking place with what someone is saying is just swinging. Hold on a moment. Everyone is coming to this seemingly plain activity and having their own authentic and dynamically different experiences of the just swinging. Right. You throw up a swing. You know, some kids are not going to be interested in that right now. And, and if you look around in an environment like that, you look around and it's like, oh, well, some kids have sticks, right? So all of a sudden, a stick has become the preferred toy. And this gets into a lot, a very sensitive <laughs> subject really quickly with, with uh, early childhood environments. Because what happens when kids pick up sticks? Almost everyone can imagine what's going to happen. <laughs> like, what's the first thing that a stick becomes? A weapon. <laughs> a weapon, right? Like, and, and they're all like concerned. And, and undoubtedly, you're going to have a couple kids that are just like, this is a sword, right? And they're going to st- use them as swords. Talk about an amazing learning tool. Every time a child picks up a stick, they create an extension of their body. And this is what I have to explain to teachers. It's like when the reason that we're able to get comfortable on a bike or in a car to the point where we know the car or we know the bike and that feeling so well, that vehicle is actually an extension of our body. Have you ever been backing up in, in a vehicle and you just know when you're like inches away from something in the back, 
And that's as much of a feeling in your body as it is a mental exercise in just like, how much do I think, do I think it, are you just guessing? It's like, no, you're not just guessing. If you know the vehicle well enough, it's an extension of your body. Anyone who's gone and popped into a car that they're unfamiliar with and they're just, oh, they feel it immediately. They're like, oh, weird. This is different, yeah. right? <laughs> this is not the feeling that I just know. Well, kids are doing that whenever they pick up a stick and becomes an extension of their body. They can poke something. They can write their names or letters. They can practice letters and numbers in the snow with it. It becomes a, a writing utensil. Uh, but oftentimes... And, and, and Yeah, I mean, you were probably going to go with this because, like, for all the naysayers that are like, oh, yeah, they're going to write in... The, the only way that kids actually even reach that point, which is why Ron's like... Because they've done the yes! sword stage. <laughs> you know, it's like, let them do the sword stage. Let them do the swing stage. And, and see, the, our education system really can't, can't cope with that. There's no room for letting um, children run their due course with whatever. It's all, all the timelines were pre- you know, determined by some editorial company down in Tennessee somewhere. When kids, when kids use stick, sticks as swords, I always tell teachers, let's just like, let absolutely let them use them as swords. It's like, that's fine. I mean, for, for one thing, kids are going to play out scenarios that they've seen, right? They're playing what they, what they've absorbed. So if you have the media that we have in our, in our environment, uh, why would you expect anything but that? <laughs> like how many ki- how many shows are kids digesting that have swords and and weapons like and that i mean that's that's the that is so much of what they see that of course when they have a, a chance to play openly um unfettered by adult agendas that they're going to go to those narratives that they know best right. here's a here's a basic scenario that happens when kids are playing swords do kids sometimes sometimes they strike with their swords and unintentionally hit a finger or something like that it's like yep that happens and that is a great learning moment because that's one of the learning moments that gets kids to say maybe i don't want to do this anymore or they become that much more controlled it's in many ways it's allowing a child the experience of falling so that they uh, manage their bodies better. Yeah, right? I mean, we can easily embrace something like that as parents or educators, society. Yeah, let the kid fall, you know. So you, you know, stop using those little walker helpers, whatever those things are called. Like as a society, we've progressed to the point that we can accept those sorts of things. Exactly. But then you get a scenario where you're like, well, just let the kid kind of flick the other pinky. What? Like, that's unacceptable, you know? And, 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 and it's really just speaking towards the same thing. How beautiful. How beautiful. Right. If you're observing and not monitoring and you witness this kid whack his friend, his friend's kind of crying. And then the, the one realize, and, and it doesn't have to be this way for it to be successful, but a successful one is like, Oh man, and he puts down his sword and he goes and checks his friend's finger, right? Right. Like they were playing and they decided, I went too far. Are you okay? Right. None uh-huh. of that could be, would be possible if the 
the gambling in in the realms of mistake had been facilitated. Yeah, when when that happens, and I will say that that happens rarely, actually, and mostly because kids are not stupid. Almost every kid knows that when they start engaging in with like sticks as swords, they understand before that ever happens that the potential for that happens or exists. And then they're much more gentle with each other. It's so it's actually very, very rare. But like you said, when it does happen, the most common reaction that I see when it happens is that the child that was wielding the stick that hit the finger will automatically turn, look for the for the adult, and and they'll say, and they say, it was an accident, it was an accident, because they immediately think that they're going to be in trouble. And my reaction is exactly what you said. Well, go check on your friend. Because that's a moment to teach empathy. Yeah. It's not a moment to it's it's not a moment to place blame and to say, see, I told you not to do that. I told you somebody's gonna get hit. You know, like the that's that's the most common reaction out of adults is that is that then they say, now put the sticks down. Like well, they have these haunting voices in the back of their head of their boss and and the kids' parents. Um, and, and, and I'm not excusing them that I'm, I'm just, you know, touching base on reality. Um, oftentimes there's this haunting and I'm, I'm just trying to be empathetic to like, you know, we understand those things, um, you know, having taught like four or five years in China where you have the most delicate and and micromanaging population of parents ever. I know what it's like to walk the line and we could have podcasts after podcasts about walking your clientele, your population towards an education of the, 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 the holistic education that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. That's a process. You're right. It's a process. And and I love that you brought the word process back because, you know, when that, that whole swing thing is process, that sword thing is process. Yep. There's, there's a, and and it shouldn't be cut off because something's yet about to happen. Speaking of process, I'd, I'd like you to take us a little bit back into the process of these fairy gardens in Denver and just tell us a little bit more about all this. Sure. Um, so again, uh, all of the materials are, are really found objects. We populate the activities and the materials that are used, um, you know, with the exception of screws and nails, probably uh, because we use in early childhood screws and nails, because that's how you teach kids, how things go together, how to build things. We'll have drills as as a power tool, but other than drills, uh, we don't really have power tools, but we do use saws and allow kids to go through the effort and the physical endurance and rigor of using a saw to see a child cut through something like a branch or a piece of lumber with a saw to see them do the whole thing and see the um, the satisfaction and sense of accomplishment that they have is mind-blowing it is impressive because it's another process right that not all kids can saw through a branch not all kids can do that but some have enough physical dexterity plus uh strength and just willpower 
to do it. And so they're modeling that to other students that don't have the physical capabilities or the endurance at that, at that time. Uh, so again, we bring in tree branches, we, we bring in found lumber. You could think of it as, a, as something that evolves into a tinker garden uh, where kids have, like I said before, like one of the first structures that we decided to build uh, was a bridge that just went across the little drainage area and kids helped build and put together this bridge. We used some big railroad tie-ish. They weren't really railroad ties, but they're big kind of squarish logs as the base for the bridge. And then we we uh, attached pallets to the top. So it was, it was not a, a difficult structure to build. Anyone could do it. Then kids have a living memory of that they built the thing in their playground. And we evolved that into, well, when I was a child, what would I have liked to do? I would have loved to have a treehouse. And so it's like, okay, well, let's build a treehouse. Let's take these elm trees that everyone thinks are weed trees, but they're amazingly flexible. And let's bend the branches in a way to make an igloo style biostructure out of it. And weave all of that together so that every year as it grows, you have more limbs to fold back down. And this was an indigenous building style in England where they, they had living willow structures and wattles uh, woven like hedges. And so we, we demonstrated that. We're drawing from all of these indigenous practices while using at the same time a mixture of whatever kind of materials we can get our hands on. So we shop at, you know, Craigslist and Free Space and Facebook Marketplace, uh, Nextdoor, anyone who's giving away stuff. The most enjoyable things that we bring every year in the fall are all the bags of leaves that people are have bagged up and put on the edge of their driveway. <laughs> and, How nice. and, and I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, like you've done all this work for me. And I just like, as I'm driving out of my neighborhood, I throw six, seven, eight, ten bags of leaves in my car or my truck. And then we dump them right below where the rope swing is and so that they can swing into the leaf. And, and it's just, and leaves then become your lesson. They become a toy. They become this inc incredible experience. All kids love a big giant pile of leaves. It's, it's amazing. And then we started to incorporate permaculture into the same areas because we wanted kids to be able to identify local plants and then start to cultivate plants and, and within those spaces. Those leaves become the fertilizer that ends up going into the garden in the springtime. It's all a process. And we're just cycling that stuff back through. We want it to all be organic. We want it to all be able to fall apart because ultimately when it falls apart, we have to fix it. And who, who, who then gets to experience fixing the thing <laughs> or repurposing that bridge or that structure when it's, you know, falling apart. The kids do. Every one of our fairy gardens is is an evolving space that's always changing. Yeah. It's yeah. supposed to be like that. Some people are like, well, why why can't you just keep everything on the ground? You know, why why it seems dangerous when kids are when you're like elevating kids more than 18 inches off the ground, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because when you add different levels, you're physically putting yourself in a different perspective on the world. And and anyone who's who's gotten to the edge of like the Grand Canyon, I mean, this is a, a, an extreme example, feels something like, oh my God, this is a different way to see the world, right? That's why people flock there. 
building a platform and multiple platforms that by going vertical, you're allowing the child to change their space. Natural play structures, natural play environments like what we build with. You know, this is one thing that we we should throw out there is that, like you said, everyone's worried about the safety element. Uh, we have really good data on the the safety aspects of natural play environments. And natural play environments are incidences of getting hurt happen five times less than a, than a conventional playground. And kids play 11 times longer. It's wow. more engaging, it's more educational, and it's actually safer than the playground that they're spending, you know, uh, just for one uh, conventional play- playground apparatus will cost about 60 grand to put in. When I look at how much one of these preschools will pay us over the course of a year, it's about $5,000. And I'm Man. like, think about how many years <laughs> of <laughs> enrichment education and engaged education can come out of $5,000 compared to how much you're blowing on a uh, playground that's where all the surfaces are static. Uh, the surfaces never change on a conventional playground, which is why kids get hurt more often because they get, they get comfortable on it and they're more mm-hmm. likely to not think as hard as they do when they're working in a, in a natural environment where the surfaces are always changing and they have to think a lot. A lot. I mean, we saw that. We saw that in a heightened way in China where everything is just even the way that the kids would walk was as if grandma's going to catch them from bumping into the slightest edge of a table on the way to wash their hands, you know, and say, right. Really unnatural. Right? right. Exactly. So when comparing between the nature playground that we built and the conventional playground, those statistics are not mine. They're Adam Bienenstock. He builds natural play playgrounds. Uh, he's out of Canada. Um, really, really amazing work. Everyone should check that guy out. Does he, is it process work or that's where I feel like I couldn't remember, you know, like none of these things like came up with, it's just like daring to do it and then giving it our own nuance, right. To where, you know, as mentors, we were like, learn to do all things. Um, that was the challenge. The, if, if you're exactly. learning, then they're definitely learning. And they're not only learning, but they're learning to be learners by watching you be a lifelong learner. I mean, talk about something that stands true after 10 years and people are like, these guys are still learning. There's a fascinating community that evolves there. But all in all, the, the work that Adam's doing is in a certain way, like entrepreneurial, it's educationally informed and it's fantastic, but we have never advocated for something that you you have to say, ah, I can't do that. I don't have the budget for it. Um, and so a lot of the toys from trash or, or not only I don't have the budget for it, I don't have the skill set for it. And none of this comes from a place of having to wait to have enough money to do it. Or having to wait to have enough skills to do it. It's like right. the Nike. Just do it. Start with a swing. Start with a <laughs> table on its last legs. Marvin came Mooney, will you please start now? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I suggest like start with logs. 
logs are are an easy way for kids to get some variation, um, some vertical variation, like big logs. Start with like big cookies, like you know, sections, big sections of uh, of a cottonwood tree that's been cut down or something like that. A log is a perennial activity in and of itself because what kids will ask me to do time and time and time again is like, can you pick up the log? Cause I want to see all the life that's going on underneath the log. Because every time you pick up a log, there's this whole world of roly polies, worms, spiders, different insects, centipedes that's going on underneath that. When we talk about a living learning environment, I mean that we're building habitat as much as we're building play structures. When we're talking about recultivating the soil and carving out sections for plants, and a lot of people might be like, well, okay, so you're going to grow, you're going to grow squash, corn bean squash, you know, vegetables, tomatoes. It's like, well, yeah, but that's not what we start with. What we start with are plants that will not fail, that are perennial mm. plants that will come back every year, plants that are so successful that people call them weeds, plants that are weeds, but edible. And so kids are learning a plant that they're likely to see at their home or in the neighborhood that they're in there's a high likelihood that they're going to cross-connect the patterns that they're seeing in those plants and what they know about those plants and then make those connections outside of the of the learning environment itself. And we have a, a really, really fantastic example of this happening. This is why we know Fran, one of our beloved community members here and uh, WhatsApp, dedicated WhatsApp listener. Um, she's amazing. She's She does amazing work here trying to get people interested in uh, living energy systems. And she's amazing in and of itself. But Fran, Fran lives right next to the first fairy garden that, that we started. One of her neighbors, had their, their child would came to the preschool and was engaged in the fairy garden. And they were over visiting Fran's house. And Fran has a lovely garden herself, she and her, her husband, Richard. And the child started to either eat or, you know, talked about this plant called dock. Dock is a, is in the sorrel family. It's an edible weed. It tastes very citrusy. So the child starts eating it and, and for him was like, Oh honey, honey no, no, no. I, I believe the mother was like, Oh no, he knows what that is because they taught him it at the fairy garden across the street. And Fran was was so moved by this that she came and, and hunted hunted us down one day that we were there and introduced herself. And I think I still have the picture of, of, of that introduction, but um, it absolutely translates to learning outside of the, of the fairy garden environment. And that's what we're going for is, is that we want plants that are basically indestructible so that kids can play with them. And, you know, this is not setting up a school garden where um, you're getting really beautiful plants donated to you from the nursery and you have one day when kids go out and plant and then maybe you have them go out and water, but, but they can't really play in it, right? Like it's not designed because all the plants are, are you know, when you plant out a, a community garden with, uh, or a school garden with a bunch with a bunch of expensive plants, you don't really want kids to necessarily tromp through those, you know, and, and turn that into their playground at the same time. But that is exactly what we do in our fairy gardens, is we plant things like mint, because you can't destroy mint. 
and kids can eat mint at any time of the year. So we go for plants like that, that, that are going to really help build the soil, but also take the pressure of play that's happening within that environment. And then we build as the soil gets better, then we can carve out small sections and put maybe a little, uh, uh, maybe have some corn growing and, and then we can start talking about those plants as being plants that we don't want to touch. Right. And so kids develop little by little, the process of, of developing not only an identity of plants, but, a, but an understanding of like, during this time of year, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to tromp through that section of the garden because there's corn there. Right. Uh, but, but in the wintertime, they all have fun tromping through all the corn. Because <laughs> so they they understand that rules and and those nuances change just like the 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 living environment itself. I love I love that Fran story, especially because I heard of Fran and I heard this story, and then I met uh, I was able to engage her in conversation and, and emails. I think it was actually back then, and then. Then I connected that she was the one that had come uh, to the fairy garden and, and just the mind and the heart that she is and to imagine what she was, because she has this like softest voice. She actually reminds me a lot of when your, your mom talks to me, <laughs> but like it, just this tenderness, like, and yet she must've been thinking like, <laughs> like every day when she goes home, because uh, what's her husband's name? Richard. <laughs> she goes home and she's like Richard these kids you know and 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 they definitely could get it you know because there's there, there's so much to say in this world for the richness that is dismissed and scoffed at with that uh oh, the kids what do they do today <laughs> just swinging you know what are they doing over there just running around that playground those kids they just running around doing stuff making big messes they need to because you actually had in light of all of this you know <laughs> we got a two-hour conversation on a fairy garden you had people like fran but then you had a whole church board that actually successfully ended up, you know, but it took them a long time and all these back and forth. So should the fairy garden live? Should it not? You know, over years, and then eventually the decision was this. It was like closing down the Garden of Eden. Yeah. A lot of the congregation didn't like the fact that, you know, once we were occupying the fairy garden, we said, we don't want you to mow down all the weeds because we're using the weeds as a, as a learning tool. And that's a sensitive topic uh, amongst the colonizers, right? Like that's, that's a, that's a sensitive topic. Yeah. Yeah. I had that comment come to me. Ironically, one of my, one of my neighbors that uh, does the organic farm collective sort of thing, like we drop right. off vegetables to each other, you know, you would think if anybody's going to get, what we're doing in our, you know, home and yard, it would be them. But the first time they came to drop off our basket, she was like, well, what happened to this yard? And we're like, oh, no, we got, the, like, we're expanding the garden. And she's like, well, it used to be great. 
was like, what do you mean? And she talked about the nicely mowed lawn that went from, you know, corner to corner. And, and, and that's a little bit about what you're saying in terms of like, it's a sensitive topic. These colonizers ain't down to the things that are growing. You know, it's like long hair in high school. You got chop, 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 trim that, trim that, trim that. Yeah, I mean, this gets back into the whole to be a plant conversation, but an extension of that, because what happens is that, so there's a great irony in our culture right now. There's a lot of great ironies, but this is this is one in particular that kind of drives me mad. Rudiana and I recently, you know, well, a few years ago when we were getting into all of this, we wanted to be able to talk to people a lot, you know, about native plants and, and to be and to do our own research and our own investigation and, and learning. And so we both uh, got certified in native, in native plants through um, uh, Colorado State University has an extension office where they offer community learning opportunities. And one of those is, is that you can take these courses that give you a native plant master certification. Right. And so we both did this and which is really kind of hilarious because you go to one of these courses and and basically it's a bunch of affluent people who are really sensitive and, and protective and they have a, they're <laughs> activists for native plants. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh, okay. And, and I go in saying, uh, well, I really love weeds <laughs> for all of these reasons that you wish they won't listen to me about, but, but here's the irony is that all of the weeds that we have, you know, all of these invasive plants were brought here by us. And they're all plants that our ancestors used to have a connection to. They used to have a deep connection to either for food or medicine or both or some other purpose. But it's like there's a reason that they're successful. And they're successful because our ancestors helped propagate them purposefully for those different uses. And when they were brought here by settlers and wave after wave after wave of different, you know, okay, well, let's bring this plant here. Let's bring this plant here. And then their success is evident. Over time, we have lost those generations that were born from those settlers that brought them, have disconnected themselves from a relationship with those plants, and they no longer use them for the purposes that they were designed. Now, can you can you give a few examples of those? Like, yeah, like what are we talking about here? Take the dandelion. Everyone wants to eradicate the dandelion from their massive acre big yard, right? Right. (laughs) That thing can have no dandelions in it, and Um, eradicate it in a way that it doesn't grow back at all, right? They're going to use herbicides. uh, Yeah. To, right. to do that. So they're going to use some unnatural thing um, to burn this thing out, 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 you know, and, and, and that's, so, so the dandelion is not native. It was brought here uh, by our ancestors, right? Correct. Yeah. It, it is, so uh, it's brought here. And now because of our forgetfulness, uh, we're trying to get rid of it. Right. Because we don't know what it was brought here for. It was brought. It, it didn't come like smallpox by mistake or, you know, like it was brought with an intention. Right. It's a superfood. It's incredibly nutritious. You can utilize every part of the plant. Asters are very much like this, the, the, every plants in the aster family. And now 
because we don't eat it anymore, or unless you go to Whole Foods and you can buy it now, you can buy dandelions at Whole Foods and, and pay a crap ton of money to put that back in your salad. And it's like, what is happening? Um, so as we've lost the connection, the people aren't harvesting it anymore. And so what happens when you have a successful plant that nobody harvests? It goes crazy. It's just like, whoa, right? Like, so this thing is everywhere. Plantain plant is very similar. The indigenous cultures, some of the indigenous cultures used to call it white man's footprint mm. because everywhere a white man stepped, the plantain plant would grow, right? It would, it would, it would come out. But the plantain plant is anti-cancer, antimicrobial, oh, antibacterial. Wow. It is a super medicine. Wait, why, why? so why did they say that? What, what do you mean? it's so successful. It just follows it. And you can find it everywhere. Plantain plant is also called band-aid plant. And because if you take a leaf and you chew it up. So we're not talking about the platano plantain. No, no, no. That's a complete. Clarify that a little bit. So the plantain tree is, is in the banana family, right? It's like a totally different thing. It's really more of an onion than it is a, there's a whole family of plants called plantagonal, plantagonaceae. Plantain plant is like common plantain. And that is a low growing, has basil leaves that comes out, tons of seeds. And so it loves to propagate in soil that's been trampled on and really compacted. You'll find it in heavy traffic areas. This plant is an amazing plant that we should be using on a regular basis, but we don't and everyone thinks it's sweet. So what's interesting and ironic is that you have these affluent people that are all about protecting native plants. If you just zoom out and say, well, what if we looked at this on like a anthrocentric perspective? Why aren't you, why aren't they really activists for the indigenous people community? What do you mean? The settlers that come here have generations, they propagate generations here, right? They go crazy. So the settlers are kind of invasive. They're invaders, right? <laughs> they, once they get affluent enough and disconnected from their, their plants, their plants become the weeds. Then they hate their own, they hate their own plants and they're want, they want to become, they, they, right. then they have a special interest for the native plants, but they don't have a special interest for the native peoples. And they don't see that they right. themselves are right. like the weeds, it may seem like we're off on a, on a tangent, but like the root work of the plants that we're speaking of and of those that are not mentioned, these offshoots are necessary. When we start off a conversation about toys from trash that leads into the natural resources within which toys and playgrounds can also be made, Attached to that is all of the skill set required to learn to work mm-hmm. with different tools and also the ethnobotanist knowledge of not only what the plant is, but the story of the plant. And then you layer upon that, like I was thinking about the hikaras earlier and 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 likewise, um, we kind of just breeze through Stingy right. Jack. You know, some listeners may know that pumpkin carving comes from the embers that Stingy Jack was asked to carry back on his way through life, you know, in this endless purgatory sort of <laughs> existence. I definitely didn't 10 years ago, and many of our right. listeners just don't. 
having the tradition of the pumpkin do not know the story of where it came from. And if at best, maybe know of the story, but have never told the story, never heard the story. That kind of stuff is common everywhere. The Hikara, we started working with the Hikara from this island in Cheetah where we kind of realized people were doing these things and we had those too. But it wasn't until like a second or third year of doing Hikaras that the revelation of the great fruit uh, which is the head of one of the twin heroes, the great Mayan miss that went down into the underworld and lost his head with the Lords of Death was hung from a hikata tree and his brains were just rotting, <laughs> which is what was so much of the smell of the hikata that we finally carved out. What I'm getting at in all of this is that the process of being a great educator has to come from an excitement for lifelong learning. Right. And if you're on that pathway of lifelong learning, everything that Ron's been talking about started with, well, huh, I'm going to try that. See how that goes over. You know, there was no way of knowing how the neighborhood, how the board, how the other teachers, even how the children would respond. There was no previous experience of having done another playground in another place. It was just reading, listening, watching, observing, and then saying, you know what, that looks like it's working. And it really comes down to what would I pass along from like a two, three hour nugget to somebody? And I would say, just make sure that you're learning yeah, and that there's no boundaries to that learning in that exploration and that trying out of things. There's going to be tons of failure along the way, but there will also be, as you look back, like insurmountable amount of learning that took place in you. And if it did in you as an educator or as a parent, then it definitely was in the, the community um, of learners around you. Well said. That is, a, that is a good place to sign off. We, we would welcome anyone else's ideas. Uh, we only just scratched the surface here. We are happy to share any of this uh, information with anyone, uh, pictures, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Just reach out to us at future at originative.org. Thank you so much for listening. This was the Toys from Trash podcast. I am Carl. And I am Ron Green. With that, we'll see you guys next time.